0: It's good to be with you this morning. I'm glad we have the opportunity to be together on this Palm Sunday. This morning we would celebrate God's goodness and God's grace as He goes into the city of Jerusalem. You know, In response to laying our crowns and falling at the feet of Jesus, I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you experienced some kind of, some kind of gift? Something that was extravagant, something that was beautiful, maybe it was unexpected. You didn't really see it. Maybe it was from a child or a friend or, or something. God just blessed you in a way that was absolutely incredible. Laura and I had such an experience uh, here in, in, in 1999. Um, Laura and I came to Hope Church in 1991 and I was a youth pastor and I, I had a great, I just had a great ministry working with the kids. I, I loved working with the youth and the adults and, and the youth ministry. We did that for, for just a lot of years, had a lot of fun, built a lot of relationships not only with kids but with families. But in 1999, I, I just I, I felt this desire to go back to school. I, I'd always wanted to go back to seminary. I felt there were some things that were missing in my life. So um, I applied to Denver Seminary, and we ended up moving um, in uh, 1999 to uh, Denver to live with my in-laws and go to Denver Seminary. And it was a big change for us. I mean, here I am, I had my wife and I, a dog, four kids. Our kids are firmly established at Hope Church. I mean... We were stepping off. We were stepping off. Didn't really have an idea of what we're going to do. How am I going to, how am I going to pay for all of this stuff, Laura? It's going to work. What am I going to do? I mean, it's just a big journey for us, um, a journey of faith for us. So a few weeks before um, we were getting ready to, to leave, it's November. We actually sold our house in November. Um, we were sitting there at, at home, and I got a phone call from somebody in our church. He had some kids in the youth group, and kind of asking me what's going on, how's the move going, and all that kind of stuff, and I knew him quite well. And then he asked me a question. He said, you know, well, tell me about your schooling. Um, we'd, like to, we'd like to help with your schooling. And as I, as I sat there and talked to them, I thought, oh, man, this would be great. If somehow, some way, they could just help us a little bit with, with our schooling. And he continued the conversation. He says, Clint, you, you don't understand. He says, I, I, I want to pay for your ceremony. I want to pay for your schooling. And I was just I was shocked. Because I, I knew how much it was going to cost. Tens of thousands of dollars. He said, listen, I, wanna, I just want to pay for your seminary. So we left, went down to, to Denver, went to seminary. For two years, all I did was send this person, this family bills. My tuition, anything that was related with school, didn't ask a question. All I did was just send them, and they paid for my, paid for my seminary education. And I have never forgotten that extravagant gift of love. Because it radically changed my life. It radically altered The things that I was able to do. See, when your life has been changed by the gospel, what happens is this. It actually frees you up not to hang on to your stuff. It frees you up with your time. It frees you up with your talent. It frees you up with all of the things that we we hold on to dearly. It frees us up to be extravagant, to be reckless, if you will, because of what Jesus said. Because when when I recognize what Jesus has done for me, that he went to the cross... And that he offered himself as a sacrifice for all of my sin, for all of that stuff. I, I should be radically changed. I should live my life entirely different, recognizing the wonder and the beauty of that sacrifice on the cross. I should be radically different people. And this morning in, in, the, in the Gospel of, of Mark, in chapter 14, we have a, a beautiful expression from, a, from an unnamed woman. The Gospel of Mark, she's unnamed. We don't really know her name. We know her name from other Gospels. But in this, this Gospel, we don't know this woman was saved. And she sacrificed extravagantly. It's a beautiful expression of her love and her care for Jesus. And what's interesting in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, the, the way that this text is lined up, you have the, the, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, and it's, it's the Holy Week has begun, and they're fed up with Jesus. They're like, okay, guys, it, it's time. We're, we're going to get rid of this guy. It's time for us to just get rid of him. Not during this festival, but, but it's time that we deal with him. And at the end, in verses 9 through 11, you you have a different character. You have this guy by the name of Judas. Judas has been with Jesus for three and a half years. He's done miracles. He's done all this. And Judas is saying, okay, guys, I'm done. And and I'm going to join with you. I'm going to betray you. I'm going to betray Jesus. So you have the religious leaders and you have Judas. And sandwiched in this text, you have this beautiful expression of this woman. Unnamed woman, a woman, who comes and she, she takes something that's very, very valuable to her, and she breaks open this veil, this jar, and she just lavishes Jesus. It's it's a beautiful expression of her love. It's a beautiful expression of what she knew and come to understand about Jesus in a way that these other guys didn't really fully understand. And Jesus would respond in a way. It's absolutely incredible. Matthew chapter 14, verse 9. Notice what Jesus says in response to this woman. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This woman was so radically changed by what Jesus had done in her life that she responded in an extravagant way. And here it is some 2,000 years later. We're looking at her life. We're looking at what she's done. And we're linking her actions, if you will, this beautiful expression of love to the gospel, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're giving her testimony some 2,000 years later. Listen, when you... When you live for Jesus and know and understand what Christ has done in your life, he gives you and I the freedom to be extravagant and give and sacrifice. Let me just pray and ask God to open our eyes to the wonder of his word this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of your word. I ask God that you would guide and direct us, that you would open our minds and hearts as As the psalmist said, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from your law. Father, open our eyes to the beauty of this act, the beauty of who she is, the beauty of what it means to live recklessly, to live extravagantly for you because of what you've done. Father, I pray that you would touch our hearts in a powerful way. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. So listen, I believe that there's a main theme, a main thread of truth in this text this morning, it would be this. If, if I will abandon myself for the Lord, then, then, then I, I won't abandon the Lord. If I will abandon myself, recognizing what, what Jesus has done, if I will abandon myself for him, I will not abandon the Lord. I, I think there's three points in here about abandonment. The religious leaders are fed up with Jesus. And they're going to abandon, if you will, abandon good for evil. They're going to begin to plot. About how they can get rid of Jesus. Judas, what's he going to do? Well, Judas is going to abandon Jesus for himself. He's going to abandon three and a half years with Jesus. He's going to abandon all of that and betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So he's going to go with this. And in the middle, we have this unnamed woman who's going to abandon herself, herself for Jesus. And that's why we have this beautiful description of reckless abandonment for the forager. So let's just walk through the text and see what, what we might learn. Abandoning good for evil, we see that in verses 1 through 2. We see that in the religious leaders. Let me, let me just read the text, verses 1 and 2. Note what he says, Mark says this, the gospel writer says, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Now, now, we understand we're getting toward the end of Jesus' life. It's, it's Passion Week. It's Holy Week. And what Gospel, might or mark, what, what he's trying to do is he's trying to remind us of, of what Jesus is doing, Jesus going to the cross and the humiliation of the cross and all the different things going on. And now we understand that the religious, they're, they're ready to get rid of Jesus. They're fed up with him. Guys, it's time. We need to get rid of him. And over and over in the Gospel of Mark, if you go back, beginning in chapter 1, chapter 3, over and over, in this gospel, you, you see that they're, they're plotting and planning to try and get rid of Jesus. You can go all the way back to Mark chapter 3 and see that these two groups of people that hated each other, the Pharisees and the Herodians, were beginning to conspire with one another because we've got to get rid of this Jesus guy because we don't like him. There's envy going on. And, and what Mark is drawing out here, that the threat of death, the threat of death for Jesus comes at a very important time in the nation of Israel. It's Passover. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and literally thousands upon thousands of people have gathered into this small little city because they're going to celebrate Passover. They're going to celebrate Unleavened Bread. They're going to have this wonderful celebration of what God had done in the past, if you will. Thousands of people. Some people say it was up to 350,000 people gathered in this small city. Yesterday, my wife and I went to watch the Cardinal game. And we brought home A winner. We went and watched the Cardinal game, and there was 45,000 people in that stadium. Imagine 300,000 people. Imagine 350,000 people crammed. Most of them are pilgrims. Most of them are Jewish people. They're coming from the outside. They're coming from all over Palestine. And what do they do? They're coming into the city to do one thing. We're going to celebrate Passover. We're going to celebrate this deliverance that God had done in the past and freeing us from the Egyptians, from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. When we cried out to him, we're going to celebrate this wonderful, wonderful deliverance, if you will. And they're gathered in wonderful, wonderful time of celebration for God's people. But notice they're religious leaders. Notice what's going on inside of their hearts. They don't really care about Passover. They don't really care about what's going on. They just want, they want this guy by the name of Jesus dead. They just want him dead. They want to do away with him. They're fed up with him. It's time for them to get rid of him. And with all of these people flooding into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover inside the hearts of the religious leaders, if you will, the the religious people, the ones who speak for God, there's this hidden agenda of what? Death for Jesus. We don't want to do it during the Passover because what will happen is this. There's so many Jewish people there. Maybe what they'll do is they'll, they'll rise up and they'll cause a riot. So what we want to do is we want to make sure we don't do it then. We want to make sure we can appease Rome. We don't want to get in a bad way of Rome. And they have this evil disposition within their hearts. What did they have? They've abandoned. They have abandoned all that was good about Jesus, all of his teaching, all of his miracles, all the things that they've abandoned, all of that, because they have this hatred inside of their heart. Think about it, the teachings. These are religious leaders. they teachers. The miracles they seen. The the things that they've been able to do, they're they're alms, they're giving all of the wonderful things. The religious leaders have come and they've supposedly been an example to all of the people. What happens is they become blind guides. They're simply blind guides leading blind people around, taking them on a path to hell. Healing of the sick, the lame. All of these things they witness and yet deep down inside of us, inside of them, is this hatred, if you will, for everything that was good that Jesus was doing. And he was standing right in front of them. He'd been around them. And they saw all the wonder and the beauty of who Jesus and what he's done. And they couldn't grasp it with their head. And they just simply wanted to get rid of him. They're abandoning good for evil, if you will. How hypocritically wrong is that for them to do? What's interesting is this. In the book of Isaiah, it actually tells us. It gives us a prophecy, if you will, of what was going on inside of their hearts. That Isaiah the prophet actually tells us what they were going through. Let me just read Isaiah chapter 29. Let me just read a couple of verses here. Notice what the the prophet says. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness, and who think, who sees, who will know. It's entering darkness. Darkness. Remember when Judas went out after he betrayed Jesus, he dipped his hand in the bread, And, and, and John describes it. You know how John describes it? When Judas left, it says this, and it was night. A little parenthetical description, if you will, of what we're going to do. Judas is hiding himself in the darkness. All of these people are saying, who knows? Nobody knows what's going on. That's what's happening here. You turn things upside down these people as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? He did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, he know nothing? Can we basically say of God, God doesn't see, God doesn't know what's going on. We can do whatever we want in the recesses of our heart. We can hide the sin inside of us because God doesn't know. The religious leaders who who had this this, um, uh, text within them basically are rejecting it, rejecting the hardness Uh, They're rejecting the goodness of who God is And what he did for the hardness of their own hearts They're abandoning evil if you will Running after evil Notice how he continues in verse 17 There's a change something's going to happen In a short time Will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field And the fertile fields seem like a forest How is that going to happen In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll And out of gloom and darkness The eyes of the blind will see Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who, with a word, make a man out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court, and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. That is exactly what they were doing with the person of Jesus Denying him justice, twisting all the wonderful things that he had said, twisting his life, twisting the beautiful words that he would say, twisting all of that so that they can simply abandon whatever was good about Jesus and pursue this evil bent of trying to get rid of Jesus. See, they couldn't understand the beauty of who Jesus is. They couldn't understand his actions. They couldn't understand his miracles. He wouldn't allow it to resonate deep inside of their heart because of the jealousy that they had. That's what sin does. Sin just eats a little way on the inside and it destroys us to an extent sometimes that we want to destroy other people. So the sandwich has been set by the Jewish religious leaders. We have the top scene, if you will. Notice what happens next. Set in contrast with the religious leaders is the abandonment of this woman. Look at verse 3. She abandons herself for the beauty of who Jesus is. Verse 3 says, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Well, the hatred of the religious leaders were taken to a very intimate setting, if you will, Simon the Leper's house. We're in Bethany, we're two miles outside of Jerusalem, if you will. It's a town where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And we're in the home of a guy by the name of Simon the Leper. How would you, how would you like to be, that to be the description of your life? That's what it's called. It's almost like a time, title Simon the Leper. Some, probably somehow, most people believe, somehow, some way that maybe he had been healed by Jesus, but he was still known as Simon the Leper. And now we're taken to this intimate setting, if you will, with the 12 disciples, maybe Martha, maybe Mary, maybe Lazarus, Simon the leper, maybe 15, 16 people in this intimate setting, in this house, if you will, where the men are gathered and they're having this wonderful meal and they're gathered around, leaning upon each other or leaning in a a gathering around this meal, if you will. And all of a sudden, this woman comes in. And we know from other accounts, we know that it's, it's Mary. We know from John and Matthew, we know that it's Mary. And she did something absolutely beautiful with her hands. She had come prepared to do something to Jesus. She comes with an alabaster, a, a jar, if you will. And, and it's a beautiful jar, maybe a family heirloom. Maybe someone had given it to her. And, and it's pure, filled with, with pure nard this wonderful, beautiful perfume, if you will. You know, they, they collect the root from India, so it's, it's got to come a long way in order for them to make this perfume, this oil. And, and she takes it, and, and she holds it, and then she, she just snaps the neck. And, and, and a wonderful display of love for who Jesus is. And, and what he's done, she begins to pour it on him. And she pours it on him and he pours it on her body on his head. And then she begins to take her hair and, and other accounts of the gospel. And she begins just to wipe his body from head to toe. She begins to wipe his body. And John says that the house was full, if you will, full of the beauty of this perfume as it resonated all throughout the house. I want to remind you of who Mary is. What's entering is this. When we, when we look at the life of Mary, over and over, Mary's described as sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to who he is and what he's done for her. And here, rather than sitting at the feet of Jesus, being in a place that she probably wasn't very welcome, she's now walked in front of all of this, opened and snapped this this perfume, this jar, and just anointed Jesus' body in a wonderful, powerful way. Fragrance filling the, the, the house, if you will, in a beautiful display. A reckless abandonment of, of her love and her care for Jesus and what he was going to do for her. So, so here's the question I want to answer. What, what might be gleaned from Mary? What might we understand and know? Why was, why was this extravagant? Why was this beauty? I think there's a couple of reasons why we can look at this act and see it being extravagant, reckless, or beautiful. Number one is that she was making a statement about her commitment to him. She brought something. She was prepared. She brought this, this alabaster jar. She brought the perfume. She was committed to him. And in, in the midst of all of these men where she wasn't really welcomed, it was kind of a men's gathering. Women were kind of put off to the side. They could come to something like this, but maybe they would be opposed to, to standing on the outside while all of the meal is going on and all the, the men are laying down. She breaks in and comes into the midst of all of that, and that social gathering, and she does something that's absolutely beautiful with this jar, alabaster jar, and she takes it with her hands and she snaps it. Nobody else is going to do anything, but she did. She came prepared to do something extravagant for Jesus, if you will. Her commitment to him was beautiful. And by the way, this is the last week of Jesus' life. And guess what? Everyone's going to leave him. We know the story. Everyone is going to leave him. Peter says, no, I'm not going to leave. Everyone else is going to leave. But he's going to be left alone. And and in Jesus' mind, he's going to have very few opportunities for him to remember the expressions of love given to him. And that's what he saw from Mary. She was very committed to him. Second thing, I think she was making a, a statement how she valued Jesus. We have no idea where she got this jar, where she got the perfume, if it was a dowry, if it was something she was saving for her own burial. We have no idea as to the, uh, to the ramification of, of how she got all of that. If she was saving it for something else, He was going to use it. Which she gonna we have no idea. But all we know is she was saying to Jesus by snapping that with her hands and breaking it off, you mean more to me than everything else, Jesus. Everything else is pale in comparison, if you will, to my love, my care, and acceptance for who you are and what you've done. She just snapped it and let it pour down his head, down his body, and then wiped it off with her teeth. Imagine as Jesus goes throughout the week, and I don't know the bathing habits of Jesus. I, I don't know all of that stuff. I don't know if he changed it. But, but imagine that perfume, that pure nard on his hair and his head. And that's something that he's walking around as he's living the last week of his life. That, that, that perfume and what she's done, that extravagance, is, is all about him. And Jesus, as he's betrayed, and all of these things going, he has in his mind. So this wonderful fragrance, if you will, possible, wonderful fragrance of, of what Mary has done for him and anointing him, preparing him for his body for burial. She was making a statement about a commitment, statement about her value. The other thing, she's making a statement about this. Her possessions. See, when Jesus frees you, it frees you not to, to grab onto and hang onto the, the possessions that you hold. We're free to give them away. We're free to be extravagant. We're free to do all of those things. See, sometimes people come to Jesus and they do they, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I want you to do this. Or Jesus, will you keep me here? Or Jesus, will you do that? And when that doesn't happen, they say, well, guess what? I tried this Jesus thing, but it just didn't work. And then they will away. I tried it. I tried the Jesus thing. It just didn't resonate with me. That's not the way that she approached Jesus. This is an act of faith on her part. Whatever that jar of, of, that alabaster jar of perfume, whatever it held for her, the monetary vow, whether it be for the future, whatever it was, she was willing to break that thing open and give it away. And In the text, we know that it's, it's, it's worth a year's salary. A year's salary. Are you and I ready to do that? Do we sacrifice that kind of way for Jesus to give away, to be that extravagant with the things that we have? This was an incredible demonstration of her love and care for Jesus and what he had done for her. Her commitment, how much she valued Jesus, how much she valued her possessions. And finally, the last thing is this. I believe she had an understanding of his worthiness to be worshipped and treasured and served. Why did Mary do this? I think in one way she's thankful. She's been sitting at the feet of Jesus and she's been thankful for his teaching. And why was she always there? She's listening to his words. I think she was thankful because... Her brother Lazarus had been raised from the dead. There's, there's no doubt that there's an element of that, that, she, that Jesus had brought Lazarus back from the dead. So she was thankful for that. But I wonder if also she was so thankful and grateful and all about who Jesus is and what he had done for her in his life and her life. How her life on the inside had been radically transformed. And I think the text tells us one other thing about her, that she knew that nobody else knew. The text says this, that she, Jesus said, she is preparing my body for my burial. Maybe, maybe in all of the teaching, maybe in all of the lessons that she'd learned, maybe in all that she had heard about Jesus, as she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Remember in in Luke chapter 11, remember she's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha's there and Martha's, she's upset because Mary, Mary's not doing anything. Jesus, I'm doing all the work. Mother saying, I'm doing all of the work. And remember what Jesus said? Martha, Martha, you are worried and concerned about so many things. But what Mary has done will what? It will not be taken from her. She was sitting at the feet, listening to who Jesus is, and that would not be taken from her. In other words, she has supernatural insight, if you will, into the death of Jesus Christ, preparing Him for the burial. That's what I believe that she was... New here. She was anointing Jesus, preparing his body for his burial, resurrection, and life to come. When nobody else knew it, Mary did. It's a song that we sang last week. It's called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And it has an interesting line in it. verse 3, I think it is line 3. It says this Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. All the vain themes that charm me most, all of the things that I grab onto, all the things that I gravitate to. For Mary, it might have been this alabaster jar of wonderful perfume, and she takes it and she says, "I'm going to give all of that love. I'm going to be extravagant in who Jesus is and what He's done for me." I mean, what are the things that you charm you most? Are they a hindrance to your relationship with the Lord? Is there something, is there a person, a thing? Is there something that's hindering your relationship with the Lord? Are you more charmed with that thing than you are with with who Jesus is and what? You see the extravagance of what she's done in breaking this alabaster jar? We don't understand it. Because the disciples didn't understand it. They didn't get it. Not everyone appreciated her extravagance. Notice what happened with the disciples. Notice what's going on in their hearts. Knows what's going on in their minds, verse 4 and 5. There's a contrast with Mary with the disciples. They've been with Jesus three and a half years. Did they get it? Notice what Mark writes. Some of those presents were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year. Its wages and the money given to the poor And they rebuked her harshly. You know what the the disciples are doing? They're ignorant. They're they're indignant. They're mad. The the, the idea behind the word indignant means they were snorting. Have you ever seen a horse that snorts? (laughs) That's literally what they were doing. They were were snorting at her. They were ignorant. They were angry. And, And they were rebuking her because of what she'd done. What's interesting is this. In the Gospel of John, it says this. You know who initiated this conversation? In the Gospel of John, it says... Judas was the one who initiated this conversation. And do you know why Judas is the one who initiated the conversation? Because he didn't care about the poor. He cared about the money. He cared about the purse. He cared about what was in the money. little money pocket, if you will. little purse. Because every once in a while, think about Judas. Three and a half years. Every once in a while he's pulling something out. Pulling something out. Pulling something out because he loved the money that was there. And so he starts this conversation about hey, we're mad, we're angry because that money could have been given to the poor. Notice the value system of the people here. They recognize the value of the perfume, they recognize the value of feeding the poor. They don't recognize the value of who Jesus is and what he's done. You see how their value system has been flipped upside? And it's it's, it's it's wrong. They don't see the wonder and the beauty. That's why they're so upset, and that's why they're mad at Mary. Maybe they watched and saw Mary do something that deep inside they wished they could have done, but they didn't do it. Maybe Mary was showing her absolute love and appreciation and care for Jesus, and that her priorities were in the right place. That they didn't get it, and because of that, they became to be angry and upset. And notice Jesus' response in verses six to nine. She speaks the truth to them, and she speaks the truth to her. Notice Jesus' response Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a Beautiful thing, that's the extravagance, that's the reckless love, that's the beautiful thing that she's done. She broke this alabaster vial, she spread it upon my body, she prepared my body for burial. That's the beautiful thing, that's the extravagance, that's the reckless thing that she's done. The poor you will always have with me, and you can help them at any time you want, but you will not always have me. But she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body before, beforehand to prepare my, for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout this world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus calls her actions beautiful, extravagant, reckless. And I want to just, just talk through that for a minute. Why was this beautiful? Maybe there's some application for us. Why is this reckless? Why is this extravagant? Why is this, why is this beautiful? As we approach Holy Week and Passion Week, what are some things that I can do That might be extravagant, or I can learn from here. I think there's a couple things. Number one, Jesus knew her heart. Nobody else knew her heart. They were judging the disciples, the apostles, they were judging her motivation. You were reckless. What you were doing, you were wasting this away. Jesus said, No, she wasn't. I know her heart. And what she was doing, she was giving out of the expression of her heart. She knew that I was going to the cross, she knew that I was going to die, and she was preparing my body, if you will, for burial. And Jesus knew her heart, and he knows my heart, and he knows your heart. He knows exactly what's going on. I believe this is beautiful and it's extravagant because of his words, I tell you the truth. Whenever Jesus uses that line, I tell you the truth, it is a wake-up call to the apostles. Ding, ding, ding. By the way, you need to listen to this. And most of the time, it's, it's done in the context, I tell you the truth, is done in the context of something that Jesus would say to them. Remember this. Recall this. Don't forget it. Here, he uses that phrase in light of what she has done for him. In other words, don't forget what she has done in anointing my body for burial, if you will. She has a beautiful heart for Jesus. This word of truth in her actions resonates, should have resonated with the disciples. And, and notice what happens in verse 8. She did what she could. She did what she could. Jesus, this is what I have. This is what I have to offer you. I love you. I care for you. I know you're going to the cross. And I'm going to give you whatever I can. I'm going to do whatever I can. And she ended up giving away. She ended up being extravagant. Why? Because Christ had somehow, some way touched her life in a wonderful and beautiful way. She lived with lavish abandonment to the Lord. This is worth a year's salary, if you will. And she just said, I'm going to break this alabaster jar. I'm going to pour it on his head. I'm going to anoint him with this wonderful, beautiful fragrance of oil because this is all that I can do for him. It's all I can do for him. She also had her priorities in order. Notice what it said it says, the, the, the poor you always will have with you. In other words, he's not lessening the importance of feeding the poor. What he's saying is there's a, there's a sense of priority. Love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, above that, what is he doing? He's putting Jesus. He's putting himself above the command to love your neighbor as himself. Why? Because of who he is. There's a sense of priority in preparing the body for burial. She had her priorities set. Christ, you're the priority of my life. And I'm willing to recklessly live in such a way as to give whenever I need to because of who you are and what you've done. And let me, again, let me just read uh, verse 9. It says this, and this is where we see her depth of insight. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. What does Jesus do? Jesus likens her anointing his body with this wonderful jar of alabaster. Um, perfume oil with his what with his life death burial and resurrection that's the gospel the gospel is the good news of the life death burial and resurrection go back and read Mark chapter 1 verse 14 repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God has come so he likens now the gospel to what his death on the cross his death on the cross Whenever the gospel is preached, life, death, burial, and resurrection, what I have done for you, and going to the cross and offering myself as a sacrifice for him, that, whenever the gospel is preached, to what she's done is going to be in memory of her, what she's done. Ultimately, in this act of wonderful devotion, she prefigured his death on the cross and in a beautiful display, lavishly gave herself to him. Ephesians chapter 5 maybe helps us to how this would relate to us Paul said this beautiful description of our relationship it says this be imitators of God therefore as dearly loved children and live a life of love live a life of love how do we live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to get to God how do I imitate God and to live a life of love I live it by, by sacrificing sacrificing for, for, for my wife and, and, and for, for my family, but by being a servant, a doulos, a servant to all that God would have and want for us. and In Mary, we see this wonderful demonstration of what it means to live extravagantly, to live like a servant and to give it all away and to sacrifice. I'm going to take this year's salary and I'm going to put it aside because I love Jesus and I love the cross and I love what he's done for me so much that I'm going to give extravagantly. So, scene one. The religious leaders have abandoned good for evil. Scene two. Mary has, has abandoned herself for Jesus. Scene three. A heartbreaking, heartbreaking scene. Lived out in the life of Judas. Notice what he does. Then Judas, one of the twelve. Is there anything more sad than that? Anything more sad than that? One of the twelve. Apostles, I'm going to send you out and you're going to do miracles and you're going to preach the gospel and you're going to do all of these wonderful things. And I want you to go back and they come back and we saw Satan falling from the skyline. So, so just this wonderful act of where, where God was doing mighty and powerful miracles. And, and Judas was part of that. He was one of the twelve. And Judas, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas Iscariot wanted to, what did he do? He abandoned, he abandoned the Lord for himself for 30 pieces of silver. He abandoned it, gave it all up. And it says he was looking for an opportunity, if you will. Think about the life of Judas for a minute. If he was the one who was always pilfering from the money, the money belt, or the, the, the little purse of money, Think about that for a minute. You ever tried to hide something from another person? Hide from the Lord? Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how hard it is to consistently seal? You have to alter your lifestyle. I mean, what do you do with the money? Do you buy some new sandals? Do you buy a new tunic? I mean, what do you do with it? Can you imagine how difficult that must have been for him? And he consistently did this for three, three and a half years, from we understand. He used to hide it. He had a reputation for hiding it. And in the text it talks about he's, he's ready to betray him and he's looking for an opportunity during Holy Week. What's he doing? He's looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. He's going he's to turn him over for some money. The thing that he, that, he, that he wanted and loved the most. What a contrast. Judas' greed and Mary's generosity. Judas' deception and Mary's beautiful Open display of worship. She's worshiping Jesus in front of everybody. Judas is hiding all of the stuff that's going inside of his heart and trying to steal the money. Judas's pride. We should have stole, sold this and given the money to the poor. All of a sudden, the, the, the religious leaders have become super spiritual. And Mary's act of humiliation coming in front of all these men, taking something really really important and special, worth very expensive, snap in the neck. She, she could have just probably took the top off maybe poured some drops on. Oh, this is lavish. This is pouring. This is a picture of Jesus pouring his life out for us. She snaps it and pours it and just dumps it on him and she's wiping his head, his hair, is wiping all of his body with her hair. It's a beautiful description of love, a beautiful description of being, Jesus being prepared to go into the cross and die one of the most Horrific deaths as she what touches his body touches his body. I wonder what that meant and felt for Jesus, to have someone anoint his body in preparation. In my mind, I'm wondering, maybe those are the last the last times that someone touched him in such a way that was important, whether it be a hug, you know, we, we all need physical touch. And this this beautiful description of Mary of of uh, snapping the oil and pouring on him, reminding him of what he did. So let me ask you this: Are you grateful for who Jesus is and what He's done for your life? Has Jesus radically changed your life? It gives you and I the freedom to be extravagant with our stuff. This isn't just about money and things that we own. This is about our very lives. It's the way we view our time, our talent, the things. And what it does is it elevates the person of Jesus and what he's done in going to the cross for our sin. It's a celebration of how our lives have been radically transformed. In one of the parables, it talks about he who is forgiven much does what? Loves much. When we recognize what we've been forgiven of and how our lives have been transformed, we will live recklessly and extravagantly for him. Father, thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. Father, I thank you for a beautiful picture from Mary of what it means to live an extravagant life, to live a life full of love because she had been touched by the message of Jesus. She had been touched by the life of Jesus. Father, I pray that as we enter into Passion Week, Holy Week, Lord, we would be mindful of who you are and what you've done for us. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.